Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival, and you're listening to a 2016 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. In 1970, David Hare's take on sisterhood, Slag, launched his prolific and stellar career as a playwright prepared to rigorously engage with the times. Since then, his plays have included Pravda, a Fleet Street satire, Skylight, a Thatcherite critique currently on revival in Broadway, and Stuff Happens about the Iraq War. Theatre aside, Hare has written a swag of material for the screen and received Academy Award nominations for adaptations of The Hours and The Reader. His memoir, The Blue Touch Paper, a reference to the instructions on British fireworks, is currently attracting praise for its unvarnished elegance and insight. One of Britain's finest dramatists talks with Simon Wilson about his life, theatrical daring and the formative cultural development which went on in Britain in the 1960s and 70s. We hope you enjoy this session. Just before we start, I would like to acknowledge the support of Festival Platinum patrons Francis and Bill Bell for making the visit of David Hare possible. Now, I wonder who remembers their Dennis Glover. I do not dream of Sussex Downs or quaint old England's quaint old towns. I think of what may yet be seen in Johnsonville and Geraldine. New Zealand poet Dennis Glover was writing in the vein of an emerging nationalist theatre in the middle of the last century. But for all that we relish the work of those local heroes, our literature and our theatre have always been open. The writers of Britain speak a language that many of us here deeply, intuitively understand, and nowhere is that more true than in in our theatre. The deeper reading of Glover is, England is in us. With us this evening, we have a writer who grew up on the Sussex Downs in a quaint old English town (laughs) called Bexhill-on-Sea, and went on to become one of the greatest playwrights of the post-war era. With the likes of Plenty, Skylight, Pravda, written with Howard Brenton, The Secret Rapture, The Blue Room, Amy's View via Dolorosa, and Stuff Happens, David Hare is one of the writers who, throughout the Western world, has been instrumental in defining how theatre entertains us, unnerves us, and speaks to us. In London, he has been a mainstay of the Royal Court and the National Theatre. His work has frequently been seen on the West End and on Broadway. Noel Coward, Terence Rattigan, and all their comfortable, well-made plays. Nope. David Hare speaks urgently to us about us. And what's true in theatre has been true in film and television too. His scripts for films like Plenty, Damage, The Reader, and The Hours have provided the foundation of very fine experiences in the cinema. His uh, films for television have also been notable events in the days when that was su- when such a thing happened, including Licking Hitler, Dreams of Leaving, Saigon, Year of the Cat. And more than that, in the early part of his career, in his work with the Portable Theatre Company and then Joint Stock and at the Royal Court, David Hare was one of the leading instigators of a great shake-up in what plays can be like and how important they can be. In the 60s and the 70s, when it mattered, he gave us slag, teeth and smiles, knuckle, and fanchen. With Plenty and Licking Hitler, David Hare was a leading British writer in the process of looking past the jingoism to re-examine the Second World War. His subjects have also included feminism, the relationship of radical politics to the centre-left, Rupert Murdoch and all he stands for, 
Margaret Thatcher and all that she stood for, corruption in business and politics, the Israel-Palestine conflict, the Chinese Revolution, the United Nations, the Vietnam War, the Church of England, sexual relations, Tony Blair's Labour Party, the value of art, and the invasion of Iraq and the global financial crisis, and Oscar Wilde. And in all of that... It's exhausting just to hear. It is, isn't it? <laughs> now, all of that, Hare weaves the private into the public. His topics are the pressing concerns of the day. His topics are also always us. We live life, it turns out to be history. David Hare has the skill, rare even among writers, to know that, to see the history as it is made and to see us in it. In his memoir, The Blue Touch Paper, which I meant to bring out. <laughs> We're going to need it later on, if that's okay. In his memoir, The Blue Touch Paper, the book that brings him to us this evening, he quotes Raymond Chandler on Dashiell Hammett. He did over and over again what only the best writers can do at all. He wrote scenes that never seemed to have been written before. It's true for Hare. For all this, and for much more, in the year that he put a naked Nicole Kidman on stage in London, he was knighted. <laughs> Sir David Hare, welcome. Thank you. In 1996, you delivered a lecture called When Shall We Live? The full quote is, when shall we live if not now? It's from Seneca. Can you tell us about that phrase? Yes, I'd, I'd written a play about the Church of England, as you say, called Racing Demon, and um, the Church of England was very flattered that I took them seriously. Um, in other words, normally when people write plays about vicars, they're meant to be amusing, and the, the vicars are figures of fun. But in fact, I found that in South London in the late um, 1980s, early 90s, the vicars were effectively social workers. They didn't mention God, which made them very strange. They were not interested in converting people. What they were interested in was expressing the love of God through service to the community and to the poorest in the community. So after I'd written about the church, I was um, asked to <laughs> preach. Well, preach would be a big word, but I was asked to speak in Westminster Abbey, which is a pretty irresistible um, invitation. Um, and so I did give a, a lecture in Westminster Abbey. Um, and it was called When Shall We Live, mainly because what worried me about religious people was, I suppose, that much as I admired their work, and I greatly admired the teams of um, social priests in Britain, um, it did seem to me an odd way to live with your eye on another life. In other words, to live in, as if this were a preparation for something else, I, and, if, and with your mind always on what is going to happen after this life rather than what's going to happen during this life seemed to me unhealthy. And so the immediacy of Seneca's question, what, when shall we live if not now, is about that feeling which we all suffer, which is, oh, some, somebody's going to come along and give me another go at this. Mm. I'm going to do it all differently. Uh, and obviously when you reach my age, you are acutely aware that you are not going to be given a second term. And in fact, <laughs> and it does strike me that it, in a way it's an epigraph for, for your, your working life, and, and uh, maybe we'll come back to that. You grew up on the Sussex coast, childhood in the 50s, in a world you said that has now almost entirely vanished. There's good and bad in that, isn't there? Yeah, I wrote a play called South Downs, which mm. was about my education, 
And when I was explaining to 14 and 15-year-old actors what Britain had been like in the 1960s, they were looking totally bewildered. And I realized that the life I was describing was, in its mood, nearer to Victorian England than it is to the present day, and that it had more in common with Victorian England than the present day. And this clashed with an idea which I had, which is that I had lived through very uninteresting times. My parents gave me that idea because they had lived through the Second World War. So I had just missed the main event of the 20th century. I'd been born two years after it. And therefore, they kept telling me how lucky I was, but also how uninteresting I was because I hadn't, you know, lived through the main event. And it was when I started realizing that actually almost everything had changed within my lifetime, far more than I'd realized in ways that I discuss in the book, I also realized that it was a strange feature of my generation, considering that everyone accuses people of my age of being self-obsessed, and we're meant to be a selfish generation, um, of how few literary writers had actually written a memoir. All the memoirs that I admired by people like Edna O'Brien and Michael Frayn are by people 10, 15 years older than I am. But my generation, the generation that, if you like, grew up with rock music and pop culture and all that after the war, um, you know, apart from rock stars and sports stars, only Salman Rushdie has written a memoir. And he wrote it for the very specific reason that he was um, the, the victim of a fatwa, which I have so far avoided. Um, <laughs> so there's time. Um, and with your lineup of subjects. Yes. <laughs> Um, it's interesting, in the book you talk about some of the people you've identified with, and, and I guess surprisingly to many people, you've said that you do have a strong identification with the characters in John Hughes' films, Pretty in Pink, Sixteen yeah. Candles. You are Molly Ringwald, in your own mind. <laughs> Look, I'm a lower middle class boy who um, made his way up the class system through winning scholarships. So it was because I was clever that I was sent to schools that I could never hope to get into if, I, if my parents had had to pay the fees. They couldn't have afforded to pay the fees. So this meant that I did have a slightly, I, I don't like using the word outsider's eye, but I had a slightly dispassionate eye um, and saw English society from the vantage point of someone who didn't quite belong in it, as I say, when I went to the school where I was principally educated, my accent was off. And I had to quickly correct my accent in order to camouflage myself successfully and just not be mocked and derided. And my life made horrible all the time. I learned to speak the way I now speak. Right. And so I could see what the rules were, but I could not understand the rules. And in writing the book, I've understood that bewilderment has been the great motor of my life. And I think it's an artistic motor. I had always thought that anger, because when I first started meeting playwrights, the playwrights I met were John Osborne, Harold Pinter, David Mercer, Dennis Potter, and all these were very, very angry people, and they were deeply uncomfortable people. The prospect of an evening uh, of, <laughs> of, of dinner with any of these people would include the possibility of at any point, any remark you make causing them to say, well, I'm not going to stay here and listen to this, and storming, <laughs> storming out. You know, every single one of these major English writers was a tempestuous presence at a dinner table, or indeed in any conversation. And they red-faced, irate, 
screaming obscenities. You know, that's, that's what playwrights were like. Um, and I was not angry, or I wasn't a rebel against the rules. I simply didn't understand the rules. The rules so, were mysterious to me because I did not come from the culture that had made the rules. So the, the generation, your generation, the, the John Edgars and the Howard Brentons, the Carol Churchills, were they like you or were they like those angry then young men? Well, I think all playwrights are thin-skinned. It is in the nature of the job. In other words, the nature of the job is that you detain 600 people and tell them that rather than spend the evening with their loved ones um, or going out for a pleasant evening in a restaurant or seeing friends, it will be more worthwhile to listen to me exclusively <laughs> for the next two and a half mm. hours. Uh, and you know, not unnaturally, audiences often therefore turn against you and feel that their time would have been better spent not in a room listening exclusively to one person. And because, you know, as I've said before, um, they management always puts you next to the people who are enjoying the play least. You, you know, when you're seated in the audience, you will always yes. overhear these terrible things. Um, I, I quote in the book my favorite, which is um, of my second play. Um, I heard a woman walking away, and as she walked away from the theater, she put her arm around her husband and said, I'm sorry, darling, that was my idea. <laughs> And there was a moment when you thought, I'll join this conversation, and then no. no. Well, well, once you've heard that enough times, it has a very corrosive effect mm. on your personality. Mm. You, you become very thin-skinned. But seriously, I think bewilderment is what... When I wrote the book, what I learnt was that bewilderment had driven me. And that I had, if I had written a successful play, it was always that I said to the audience... Look, this is how it seems to me. This is how things look to me. It seems to me this is how things are. Does anybody out there recognize this? Mm. And when you write a successful play, you can feel people's gratitude for what they have always intuited but not necessarily been able to be express, be there. When you write a flop, they go, I don't know what you're talking about. There's another, there's another emotional state that you write about at some length in the book, and, and that's guilt. Um, you, you tell us... Um, that teachers in post-war schools, uh, there were a number whose primary motivation was simply to be near young boys, um, and you put it very bluntly, you say a large cohort of men came out of the army, went into schools, into teaching, to be near young boys. And then you say even a sexless relationship with someone in a position of power creates in children a very powerful sense of guilt. It's the sense that you're always in the wrong, you can never ever be in the right, and that feeling really drove my life for so long. Do you feel guilty still? Um, I feel a lot less guilty now I've written the book. Um, I think that my past disturbed me, and when I wrote about um, my past, a lot of people wrote to me describing exactly this feeling, a teacher falling in love with them. You know, I mean, when I came to New Zealand, I was told it was going to be like Britain in the 1950s. Anything less like Britain in the 1950s, <laughs> I, I, I cannot imagine. You know, you can get a decent cup of coffee, you can mm. get a very good meal. People are pleasant. You know, they, they, they were not pleasant in England in the 1950s, and they were full of the most terrible repressed feelings, which often were centered on tiny little people who, you know, were 8, 10, 11 years old, of whom they had emotional expectations, which those small people could not hope to fulfill. And this didn't mean there was necessary physical interference, but they were living their emotional lives, these teachers, through their love 
for their pupils. And this produced in young people an immense sense of guilt that they couldn't possibly satisfy the fantasies and needs of their teachers. And nor could they, because those fantasies were unreal. You're very hard on yourself in the book. You, you, you say your mother used to say to you, I love you, but I don't like you. You, you tell us a story about being a nasty little boy um, um, uh, to one of your friends. Um, and you also say that at school you had a deep certainty that you were unlikable. Probably all mothers think I love them, but I don't like them at certain stages. And, and, and of course, all Yeah, children. I think my mother said it with a special pleasure. Oh, I see. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering if, if you feel that it's unusually true for you. I mean, all children are horrible. Look, it's I a, can only, you know, this is what I mean about a book or a play is a speculation. You describe what seems true to you. And then you say, is there anybody out there who recognizes what I'm talking about? Now, in the case of the book being, as people say to me, full of self-hatred, um, I have found different responses to this. In other words, some people say he must be putting it on because nobody can dislike themselves as much as that. And if you in, in this audience are, there are people here who are strangers to self-hatred, good luck to you. I'm sure you're living a very pleasant life and a much, <laughs> a, you know, a much pleasanter and happier life than those of us who have suffered from self-hatred. Um, but, you know, that I am also getting letters from people saying, at last, somebody talks about the subject of self-hatred, which is such a common thing among some people. It's, it feed, feeds into your work in various ways, too, doesn't it? I'm thinking of Philip Roth's comment about Pravda. He said to you, he wrote to you to say, you are not a nice boy, David. <laughs> And he thought that was a good thing, of course. <laughs> um, he yeah, says well, I, you, he I, advised I, you to yield to the muses who know better than anyone and stick to the wicked. Well, I mean, Philip Roth was, you know, Philip Roth was living in England in the 1980s, as I briefly mentioned mm. at the end of the book, and we struck up... Eating friends. the most awful food. Mm? Eating the most awful food. Yeah, you could find <laughs> America's greatest novelist eating in the branch of Spud You Like, <laughs> where... Where, where this his favorite, is a great revelation in the book. Where, where his favorite dish was a baked potato with baked beans yeah, on yeah, top. Yeah. And I just couldn't believe this was Philip Roth in Spudgy Like, but it was. Uh, but he and I became friends simply because we had common experiences, which were that he dared to write truthfully about certain things that people want you to censor and not write about. And for that, in Philip's case, then obviously the most terrible calumny had been heaped upon him and he'd been told he was a disgrace to his community and disgusting and a horrible little boy and mm -hmm. should, you know, grow up and stop being so mean and nasty. Um, but he regarded looking those feelings truly in the eye as the mark of a serious writer. And what he, what he said when I wrote um, Pravda with Howard Brenton, which was essentially a portrait of a newspaper magnate, played by Anthony Hopkins and loosely based on Rupert Murdoch. Um, very, you know, not, not very loosely. Not, not very loosely. <laughs> South African, but... <laughs> but for legal reasons, we say loosely based on, on Rupert Murdoch. Uh, it, you know, he, what he loved was that it can release in the writer all the, thing, all the unpleasant things in themselves that they would not say in, were their own opinions, but which they have the freedom to write about and which is incredibly liberating to write about. And any writer who doesn't love the performing arts for the fact that it can liberate in you the ability to say things that you can't say in polite conversation, that's one of the joys of the arts. Lambert LaRue, who, who is that character, is one of your villains, um, and there are, there are others in your work, but it does strike me that your supposed monsters a lot of the time 
aren't really monsters, and that's what makes them very interesting. I'm thinking of Susan Traherne and Plenty. You might like to explain her role, but she behaves so terribly, but you wouldn't call her a monster, I yeah. think, would you? I, mean, I came and heard Paula Hawkins yesterday talking about um, people saying that the character in The Girl on the Train was unlikable. And I could tell that Paula Hawkins was as mystified by this complaint as I am by this complaint. I noticed that audiences are, or at least critics are, notably hypocritical in this, about this. They condemn in characters on stage traits which they themselves have far worse. You know, they come out and they say, oh, it's so shocking. The man was an adulterer. You know, and you go, oh, and you've never committed adultery yourself, I suppose. And so this whole thing about, <laughs> likable, unlikable, as if it were, you know, as if the, the, the theatre were a court of law in which you're casting moral, moral judgment and that anyone who's morally flawed is, in quotes, unlikable, just seems to me absolute nonsense. And even in a play like Skylight, which is a two-hander with another character who bookends the, the main action, yeah. there, there's a, there's a character, the, the, the young teacher who is, has a social worker perspective, she speaks so, she, she represents a, a, a force for good, and Tom, who is the capitalist restaurant owner, um, you could argue, well, he's the Thatcherite um, beneficiary, if you like, but... Even there, you're not setting Tom up simply to be a villain, are you? No. He's a much more complicated character. It is and with, the argument is... It more. is with the play Plenty that I got into trouble, in the sense that because um, people thought that... Um, because they chose to judge the central character, Susan Traherne, who was played, first of all, by Kate Nelligan, then played by Meryl Streep in the movie, um, and because she was dissatisfied with post-war society... They accused me of being um, a prig, and uh, as if I were saying, I, the author, yeah, yeah. were saying that I were better than other people. And this charge absolutely mystified me, and yet it stuck with me uh, for many, many years, as though I were claiming to be better than other people. But I'm not. I'm just, uh, I, I judge my characters a great deal less than critics do. I want to talk about that a little more in a minute, but I wonder if we could just go back a step to your early days as a founder of a uh, portable theatre company. You toured in a V-dub van, you were doing experimental theatre, touring theatre, it was very political. The context of this is that one day they went to a venue where there was another show called Don't Come. And this involved a group of naked actors, David tells us, walking around clucking like chickens and reading the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> Those were the days, David. <laughs> they, they but, but you couldn't have written that, could you? That is not a play I can ever imagine you writing. I've never written a play called Don't Come. No. <laughs> uh, but it was this sort of thing where politics and art were so confused. Um, I mean, I... I understand those people who do, who are, who feel that the problem of putting the world right is so urgent that to waste your time fabulating and making up stories seems like an indulgence because there are more urgent things to do. Um, and obviously, Arundhati Roy is a person who, you know, I admire because she basically has given up writing books on the grounds that there are more important and pressing things to do. And that was a feeling, you know, we all went into the performing arts at the, at the beginning of the, uh, the end of the 1960s because we wanted to dramatize the social situation. So art was just a tool we were using. Unfortunately, I became addicted to the tool. And I found its difficulties and its challenges so fascinating 
that I've spent my whole life fascinated by those challenges. But it does leave me with guilt that I haven't done anything more useful. Really? With my life. Goodness me. <laughs> I was going to move on to the royal court. You tell us a, a, a lovely story in the book um, when you had teeth and smiles uh, at the royal court, which is a story about a rock band. Um, Helen Mirren was the star, the young Helen Mirren. Um, you, you directed as well as wrote, went to give her notes. She meets you naked in the dressing room door. Yeah, nakedness <laughs> seems to be a theme. It does, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's true that Helen Mirren was in those days very much a rock chick, not the respectable figure she has since become. Um, you didn't think she would play the queen one day. I did not think she would. She certainly d did not seem to have monarchical views in those days, but, but you, things have changed. You're confusing her with the character um, there. But she certainly had very... If, 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 if as a director you're trying to give notes to an actor, that actors have various techniques for avoiding your notes. Um, um, my favorite with Helen... Well, there were two very good ones she did. She did one where I noticed that my notes were causing her to cry... Um, this was in a company meeting, and she was in tears running down her face as I told her how she could improve her performance. And I said, uh, I hope my notes aren't upsetting you. And she said, oh, no, I was thinking of something else entirely. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> you know, there are a number of actors in the audience I know, and I'm sure <laughs> taking notes. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one, that. Yeah. Um, and then later, yeah, when she finally agreed to let me into her dressing room to give notes alone, then she was concealed behind a copy of the Evening Standard. Um, <laughs> yeah, that would work. <laughs> yeah. And then she put down the Evening Standard and had absolutely no clothes on at all. And she said, now, nah, what notes do you want to give me? She said. <laughs> and, you know, in the book, he doesn't tell us what happened next. <laughs> and you're not going to now. No. <laughs> Our lives dismay us. We know no comfort. We have dreams of leaving Everyone I know. The uh, lines from the book, from the, the television play, uh, television film, yeah. uh, Dreams of Leaving. The dramatic climax of your book is your artistic and emotional coup de foudre with Kate Nelligan. You're married, she's got a partner too. It's a thunderbolt, it's love at first sight. It's, I'm sure, too much to say it's the reason you wrote the book, but you do communicate in the book a deep need to tell us about that affair. Um, yeah, I mean, well, I'm really what I'm trying to do is something which I don't think has been done before, which is to try and weave together the political history of the time, my professional history. It's a bildungsroman. In other words, it's about how I became a writer. And it's about the 10 years from when I first tried writing to when I actually wrote a halfway decent play. But it's also about the cost to everybody around me of my becoming a writer. And that meant the cost to my family, meaning my wife. And it also meant that um, a very explosive affair with my leading lady that um, I write about because that's part of the story of how I became a writer. And so the, the, the cost to my own life, I didn't think I could write a true book unless I, I wrote mm. about that as well. I didn't want to write a theatrical memoir. I have no interest in writing a theatrical memoir. I wanted to write something which put these three strands together, much more like a novel. And the, the two comments that please me most about the book are either when somebody says, it's more like a novel than it's like a memoir, that's exactly what I wanted. And secondly, what you said earlier, which is a, a wonderful remark somebody made where they read it and they said, oh, I didn't live, I didn't realize I was living through history. I thought I was just living my life. Yeah. Uh, but when I read the book, I realized it's history. And that's what I'm trying to do. Dreams of Leaving itself is, is, parallels your, your life at that time, doesn't it? It's, it's, 
it's yeah. not autobiographical, but it's pretty close to it. You know, yeah, it's it's about the situation yes. you were in, and it, it in the in the memoir, it's a it's a very unflattering portrait you paint of yourself, uh, and it rather suggests that dreams of leaving was a kind of wrecking ball that that you, I was going to say fearlessly. Yeah, you know, waved around, but actually probably full of fear, but waved it anyway, or, or swung it anyway. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, it's the usual thing that any writer will tell you. You don't have much choice uh, about what you write about. Um, the subject suggests itself. Um, as you eloquently said earlier, mostly I've written about the exterior world, and mostly I've written about things that are not to do with myself. Um, it's only very late in life that I've written a book about my about myself, or it's only very lately that I've been moved to do that. But Dreams of Leaving is certainly the most autobiographical book. I'm uh, sorry, most autobiographical film I ever wrote. And I, did, I, I you know, I, I had no choice but to write it. You don't set out to hurt anybody, but unfortunately, you have to write it. And it tells us that we have no one has the right to judge. But you also say in the book, you, your advice on relationships is the advice that your agent Peggy Ramsey gave you. She told you, "Do what you want to, but then pay the bill." Is the memoir part of paying the bill? Yeah, I think you have. I, I think it's such great advice, uh, which is, you know, you are free to do whatever you want, but you can't. You will then be presented with the bill, and you have to pay the bill. And don't complain about the bill. Right. And there is a bill to be paid. And that was, I think, great advice that she gave. But I think the second thing that came out of my own, um, I, I was a non-judgmental person anyway, and I never, ever judge people's behavior <laughs> in, in their private lives. It's left me with a horror of it. And uh, it makes newspapers very difficult to read because essentially newspapers are, you know, just people judging people and saying that they're terrible because they do this or the, because they do that. And I just um, know how much more complicated the truth is inside uh, relationships than it is um, as seen from outside. You've written so many great roles for women. Kate Blanchett called Susan Traherne one of the three great roles with Blanche Dubois and, and Hedda Gabler. Um, there, uh, did, you, did you feel that that's what you were doing at the time? Did you have a sense that this is a, an unusual Yeah, I did, I did know that I wanted to write for women. I, it, yeah. it, 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 I'm, I don't think it was exclusively political. In other words, I don't think it was just because I felt that it was ridiculous that half the human race never got onto the stage. And if they did get onto the stage, they were standing at the side of it and the bloke was standing in the middle. And it, that did seem to me a very unsatisfactory situation. Uh, but that, you know, that doesn't mean artistically that you're necessarily able to do anything about that. It's much more that my affinity has always been with women and I've always enjoyed writing women. And once I started writing women, then the greatest actresses in the world wanted to play these parts. And they're a lot easier to get the greatest actresses in the world than the greatest actors yeah, in the world. Because the greatest actors in the world are spoiled and are used to leading. And the actresses are all queuing up to play these parts. And, of course, you wrote uh, Meryl Streep into an Oscar for uh, The Hours and, and um, Kate Winslet into one for The Reader as well, didn't yeah. you? So. Yeah, two I more great roles there. I can't do it to order. <laughs> after, I, I, after I'd written two films in succession, which won their leading ladies' Oscars, then various... And you were nominated for Oscars for both those. Yeah, but, but various <laughs> actresses contacted me and said, can, can you write me a part and win me an Oscar? Yeah. I, of course, I said no. Of course, your first play is Slag, or the first um, significant one. Um, you looked around, you saw radical feminism, and you thought, this, what, you know, 
Because that was yeah, it was you, just, weren't, you weren't particularly kind to radical feminism. Uh, <laughs> no, I, what I was satirizing was um, separatism. In other words, right. um, if you remember in the 19, late 1960s when feminism first geared up, I was reading this really wild stuff from America about the X chromosome, XX chromosome and the XY chromosome and how the XY chromosome was a deformity and only women were the real human race and all this stuff. And that immediately women should go off and live by themselves and, you know, cut men out of the picture altogether. Um, and this stuff I was reading at exactly the same time that Jermaine Greer was reading it. And actually, um, and, you know, J Jermaine's book is a great popularizing book, The Female Unit. And The Female Eunuch appeared about six months after I wrote Slag. And when I read The Female Eunuch, I thought, oh, I, I understand that Jermaine's been reading exactly the same American, mostly American literature that I'd been reading. Uh, but of course, I'd been reading it <laughs> in a satirical um, frame of mind, whereas <laughs> Jermaine was reading it in a much more uh, serious frame of mind. Yeah. After the Royal Court came the National, you had transfers to the West End and Broadway, you became establishment and you got criticised for that. Yeah. Mm. I think there was an extraordinary history in Britain, which was that the principle of a national theatre was a socialist ideal. It was invented by Harley Granville Barker and George Bernard Shaw, and they wanted to remove the theatre from the pressures of commerce. They thought that it was a bad thing, that this art form should have to earn its way. And the only way you could make it back into an art form was to remove the pressures of commerce. And that had traditionally been a radical, left-wing, liberal idea throughout the 20th century, supported by people like Kenneth Tynan, and then supported by Jenny Lee and ministers of the arts, Attlee's government, you know, pouring money into the arts. Then suddenly, in the late 1960s, because we had created an alternative theatre, the left turned against the idea of a national theatre and said, oh, the national theatre is going to be an establishment theatre. We don't want anything to do with it. And those of you who, from the fringe, want to work in the national theatre are therefore betraying the ideals of the fringe by going to work in an establishment theatre. Now, the reply of Howard Brenton or me was to say, hang on, are you so weak? Are you so unsure of your own position that you actually don't think you're going to be able to survive and present the work you want to, to a far larger audience than it can possibly reach on the fringe, from the, in the mainstream, do you, do you really think that you're so corruptible that your ideas will change? Um, because we don't. We just want the opportunity. And if we don't take it, then the people who never believed in the national theatre, the theatrical right wing, will be the people who run what was meant to be the anti-commerce yeah. theatre. And what good is that? How does that help anybody? It also gave you resources, didn't it? You could put class and wealth on stage. You, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking of uh, Pravda. Pravda, we meet Lambert LaRue in Pravda in an enormous empty exhibition hall. The very next scene, he's in a gentleman's club. There are 20 high-backed leather chairs. This is called for in the script. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I've always thought that 20 high-backed leather chairs was the reason we've never seen Pravda in this country, because <laughs> <laughs> the money ain't there. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you were working with major actors, major directors, uh, with, with the resources to work at a scale that isn't possible yeah. in any other way. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what we thought a national yeah. theatre was for. But yeah. also, you know, I wanted to write a form of epic theatre. You know, what, what people tended to say was that I'd brought the cinema to the theatre, that I, you know, because obviously my generation loved the cinema in a way that we didn't necessarily love the theatre of our time. 
Um, and so we were brought up on the cinema, and we wanted the theatre to have the same freedom as cinema. And to get that, and to get the joy of epic, which really comes from conjunction, you have one scene up a mountain, you have another scene on a moor, you have the next scene in a gent's lavatory, the next scene is in a cafe. And your plays are full of that. Yeah. Done with almost gay abandon. Here's another challenge for the director on the set. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, go for it. Mm. And that way, but it's it's for political reasons. In other words, I think it tells the truth about life. Mm. In other words, I want to feel history blowing through the room. Now, in fact, stuff happens. You have people arriving in helicopters, don't you? Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, helicopters <laughs> and what, what, I mean, whatever. But it, but it's also it's a political thing because if you present a play that's just set in a room, uh, unless you are Chekhov and very gracious, you know, writer, one of the very gracious writers the theatre has ever had, it is very hard within a room to make you feel that history is blowing through it. Chekhov can do it, and of course the cliché you say of Chekhov is you can sense the revolution about to come outside the room. But that's because he's a great writer. Those of us who are lesser writers need to actually portray history. And our guy is Shakespeare. In other words, our, our man is Shakespeare because with Shakespeare, he doesn't tell you there's been a battle off stage. He puts the battle on stage. He doesn't tell you there's been a murder. He puts the murder on stage. And so this tradition in the British theatre, which, which was that you actually portray the event, you don't just, in quotes, talk about the event. That, that was terribly important to me. I want to ask you a big question, which is why now write for theatre? Why? Yes. Um, well, <laughs> you mean today? Yeah. Now that things have changed, is that, is that your question? Mm-hmm. Um, why do I personally go mm-hmm. on? Oh, in the hope of writing a good play. Okay. That's, that's, it's, you know, that, that's, it's, it's that, not a big that, answer. There shouldn't be a big answer. Is that what you? And also because as an artist, you don't have much choice over what, um, shape ideas have. You know, I have, you know, you looked askance when I said I regretted certain things, but I regret everything. I regret that I haven't written more for television. But unfortunate, because, you know, how, who, who could turn away that audience of six, eight, ten million people? If you're a political writer, you want to reach as many people as possible. Television's the way to do it. And but unfortunately, the artistic ideas have not always come out right. television size. Okay. And I regret it. Right. Because there was a period in your life when you did do some one-hour plays or films for television. You worked at Pebble Mill in, in Birmingham. Yeah. And you worked with the Alan Bleasdales and the Mike Lees and Willie Russell. Yeah, it was a sort of utopia. I mean, it, yeah. you know, it was utopia. We, the, the, the best writers and directors of the day were all sitting in a canteen in Birmingham being mutually supportive to each other. The ones everybody would know, Ken Loach, Mike Lee, Stephen Frears, Everybody, and we were all sitting around, and we were all, we, it was like being at an ideal university. And, 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 and that's gone. Mm. Look, that's gone. But what we've got now is some very great television series. Sure. Now, I, I wonder if you have a hankering to be well, a I've showrunner. Recently, no, I've recently done the Warwicker trilogy, which is page mm. eight, um, uh, Salting the Battlefield and Turks and Caicos. Um, and I did find this wonderful freedom in it. And I found I wanted to direct again. And I also found that um, wonderful actors would turn up. It's, there's a lot of Bill Nye in it, inevitably. Um, and it, it, wonderful actors would turn up and do fantastic work. And yes, it is possible on television to do exciting things. Does it surprise you that there is so much good television 
today? Not really, because I've lived through what has been going on in Hollywood and what has been going on in Hollywood. You know, I made two films, one, or I wrote two films, The Hours and The Reader, and both of them were what are called crossover films, meaning they start in the art houses and then they go out and make what seem to us huge sums of money in commercial houses and, and they play in the mouths and they get out of the art houses and into the public at large. At the time we were making The Reader, the producers in Hollywood were all saying to us, you know this kind of film is no longer going to be possible. The film that is made for $20 million mm. and then makes a profit, a decent profit of a mere 60 or $80 million. That's not enough, enough for them anymore. So once film ceased to be interested in human beings and ceased to tell human stories, then television has rushed into the gap. And significantly, it is writer-led. In other mm -hmm. words, all every single great series that you can name that's going on at the moment, the person who is running that series is a writer. It's exciting. And so a writer-led medium, people have woken up to the fact that there's this wonderful writer-led medium. And it's enabled by the, uh, the television companies, which is the next part of it. They're yeah. not saying no, they're yeah, saying but they're, yes. They're just moving into a space which, unfortunately, Hollywood has, yeah. has, you know... I read today a review of the film with Julia Roberts and George Clooney, which is vaguely about human beings, and I read a review of it saying, if you still want films about human beings, go to this film. Because otherwise, there aren't going to be any films about human <laughs> beings. But it said, go in the matinee at half price, because it's not very good. But, 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 but go. still go just to support it. I wanted to ask you about the process of writing. Um, you, you say in the book, because I was no longer in command, I was able to stop worrying about the effect of what I was doing. But elsewhere, I've, heard, I've, I've read you say, a play is always what the author wants to write. Getting, lo getting lost in the play, controlling it, can both those things be true? Well, I think a political writer is deeply interested in the audience. Yeah. And, you know, Samuel Beckett is famous for the fact that he regarded a play as being just a poem. Even if he directed the play himself, he never stayed for a performance of his own work. He never saw his own play with the public because he was not remotely interested in what the public thought of it because that was not part of what he was yeah. trying to do. And I actually was in Germany when he was directing a German production of Waiting for Godot, and at the end of the dress rehearsal, he waved goodbye to the actors and got on the train to Paris. And he was the director. It's he never stayed to see it. It's wrong, though, isn't it? My kind of theatre, the theatre I love, has got to be about what the contact mm. is between the stage and the audience. So the play doesn't exist for me until I sit at that first preview and live through the way in which the audience is receiving it. Again, that's about the play being a speculation and me saying to the audience, does anyone know what I'm talking about right. here? Whereas Samuel Beckett just said, this is what I'm talking about, take it or leave it. I wonder how that phrase, I was no longer in command in relation to the writing, relates to a play like Stuff Happens. Stuff Happens is a kind of verbatim theatre, but the, the characters are Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld and so on and, and, and Tony Blair, and it's your... It's your standing up what happened that led the, war, the world into the invasion of Iraq. Um, you must have had a very tight sense of control so that it said yeah, pretty I'm, much it, exactly what you wanted it to say. It didn't actually do what I wanted. Um, okay. in, in other words, the original idea of Stuff Happens was that it would be like a town hall meeting. In other words, we said, after the Iraq war, the director of the National Theatre of Britain said, I cannot say that I am running a national theatre unless this year I have a play about the invasion of Iraq. 
And I said, I'm going to write a play in which all the doors of the theatre will be open. And it will be like a town hall meeting, and everybody will be able to come and go. And anybody will be able to speak and interrupt the play, and it'll be much, it'll be free form. Unfortunately, when I started writing the play, I found I had a narrative. And it was not a narrative which at the time was understood. The narrative crudely was that, you know, Donald Rumsfeld, George Bush, and Tony Blair on two days after 9-11 resolved that they could exploit that event for another purpose. Now, when I said that those years ago, that was an extremely controversial thing to say, and it was not a very popular thing to say in Britain at the time. It is now the common wisdom, and it has never been disproved. But artistically, the form did not... It didn't end up in the form I would have wished because it found its own form, like any work of art. The name of your memoir is uh, The Blue Touch Paper, the blue touch paper being what you like to set off the fireworks. It also references The Blue Room, I think, which is your version of the story of La Ronde. Um, I saw that in 1998 in Don My Warehouse. And it's famous for the briefly glimpsed bottom of Nicole Kidman. She, it was her idea to be naked on stage? Um, I wasn't around you weren't when around? she yeah, decided yeah. to take her clothes off at the dress rehearsal. She just said to Sam Mendes at the dress rehearsal, uh, do you think it would be a good idea if I took my clothes off in this scene? To which Sam Mendes replied, well, why don't you try it? And she took her clothes off, and he said, that's great. But it's not just titillation, is it? <laughs> As you would, yeah. No, it wasn't the titillation because, because, in the slightest, but then yeah. we found ourselves at the centre of more or less the biggest media storm ever yeah. to hit the theatre. Yeah. And it ended up with us on the front page of Newsweek. And we actually had the front page of the New York Daily News. The entire front page was devoted to the opening of the Blue Room. So, you know, for those of us at the centre of this firestorm, which was as crudely Sam, Nicole and me, uh, you know, it, 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 it was a phenomenon. But it was a phenomenon from which I felt entirely detached. I didn't, uh, I didn't think it had much to do with my play. But at, at, in the middle was a rather sweet, sensitive little play, which um, mercifully gets revived. Um, and people can now, I hope, begin to see what the play actually is, yeah. whereas at the time it was just a, a, a media hell, really. <laughs> There's another sensitive little play um, you've written, which two, uh, one year earlier, actually, Amy's View, uh, which was a vehicle for Judy Dench at the time. Um, it's a defense of art, particularly of the theater, and it's a trenchant attack on media busily lowering its standards. But it's also the kind of intense little intimate drawing room family crisis play that you've written very little of. Uh, and I wonder, I wonder if you feel a play like that could even be written now and staged in a, in a main, major way. Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't think there's anything people can't do in the theatre. In other yeah. words, uh, you know, it, 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 I've lived through so many turns of fashion in the theatre where things have gone in and out of fashion. And people say, oh, this isn't possible anymore and that isn't possible. And then a great writer comes along. And when the great writer comes along, they simply remake the form. And you may say that, you know, obviously in the first half of my life, there were plays like Look Back in Anger, um, and there were plays like The Birthday Party and The Caretaker. There was Saved. There was Waiting for Godot. Um, you know, it, 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 it was true that there were constant revolutions in theater. And we don't, since Angels in America, seem to have had a great play that absolutely turns the theater over in the way that it used to be turned over at 20 years intervals. There has been, you know, there have been successful plays, but there hasn't been 
a revolutionary play. Some people feel Sarah Kane represents that, uh, but her, her influence has not been great enough to be a great overturning of theatre of the kind that was so exciting in my childhood. I wanted to ask you very briefly about critics, because I told you I was one. Um, you quote Jean Cocteau, whatever they criticise you for, intensify it. Is there any good role for a critic? Um, it's nothing to do with me. That's what I feel. I, I, it doesn't, it, it, you know, I'm, I'm acutely oversensitive, and so that's not something I'm proud of. Um, I'm very thin-skinned, and so if I read a critic, I simply um, get upset by them, so I don't read them. Okay. Tina Brown in the New York Times said your comments on critics reminded her of Oscar Wilde. The play was a complete success. The audience was a failure. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, that is what I felt. I simply don't accept that. Look, I was trained to be a critic. What I mean is, you know, I went to Cambridge to study English. They wanted me to be a critic. That's what they wanted me to be. I want, you know, F.R. Leavis was the great judge of the time. And it did seem to me that the people who taught English at Cambridge were essentially expressing their resentment against literature rather than expressing their joy in literature. And they felt that somehow the failure of their own lives was intimately um, tied up in Wordsworth's failure ever to write a good poem or, you know, <laughs> Keats's, yeah. the poor lyrics that Keats wrote, you know, which are always disappointing, you know. If you look at a play like Skylight, uh, which is your, uh, which is a, one of your leading plays on, on Thatcher um, and Pravda, ten years earlier, um, what's true in Skylight and what's true in Pravda? Uh, those things are now true a thousand times over. Mm-hmm. Racing Demon about the Anglican Church, you talked about before, Via Dolorosa. Um, they address urgent concerns of their time. Even Amy's View uh, addresses its concern about the supposed decline of theatre urgently, and yet. 20, 25, 30 years later, here we are. Things didn't collapse. The issues are still right there. Does that mean you were right? Um, the media has been gobbled up by barbarians, etc. Or is it that you were wrong and it seemed like the end of times, but actually it's just what it is and it's not the end yeah, of times I mean, then or now? The charge against any political playwright is it's journalism. That's what they always say. They always say, it's journalism. You're just writing about now. They, they don't notice the fact that any decent political play has a metaphorical element as well, and that it isn't just about itself. Journalism, and great journalism, great reporting, is about itself. It's about the events that it is dedicated to describing. That's what it's about. It may aspire to the condition of art, but it won't be art unless there is a metaphor, and unless there is something that makes it true not just about what it's writing about, but, but about other things. And so often I have written about things that were topical, meaning the invasion of Iraq, but for me that's a Shakespearean play about power. And it will continue to be uh, uh, of value, I believe. And so when Skylight was recently revived in London and New York, and it's going to be read here tomorrow um, with Kerry Mulligan and Bill Nye, then everyone says, oh, presumably you've rewritten it all. The, all these speeches in the second act, you can't possibly have written those 20 years ago. You must have at least tidged them up, mustn't you? I've not changed a single word of Skylight. It's exactly as it was 20 years ago. I, what has changed is you. You see it differently. You hear it differently. And you hear it differently because of the experiences that you've lived through, which make certain parts of the play shine at a different angle from how it 
shone 20 years ago. Specifically, you know, as it says in the program, Kerry, a couple of speeches of Kerry Mulligan's being applauded every night now when they were not applauded 20 years ago. Right. Because mm. the issue that she is talking about has become more urgent. Now, that's this, particularly the speech in defence of social workers, isn't it? Yeah. That, that, yeah, that gets that. I wanted to ask you where you find hope. If You, you escaped Bexel into a creative, into theatre, a creative life. It's a kind of Billy Elliot syndrome. You, you wrote Susan Traherne, who can't do that because she doesn't have that opportunity. Yeah. But the theme of escaping into creativity is a common post-war theme, and in Skylight, you pose it differently. We can validate and justify and find worthwhile, a worthwhile thing to be you know, through social work. Yeah. Um, where do you find hope? Oh, well, I mean, you know, I began to um, not, you know, Thatcherism threw me for a loop. I didn't see it coming. The last thing that occurred to any of us was that the world was going to turn rightwards in the 1980s. And it took me five years to work out what I felt. But slowly, towards the end of that decade, I came to admire those people who say, um, look, wounds are being created. These intellectuals at the center of power who, who come up with fancy theories like welfare dependency and austerity and all these things, which intellectuals can talk about, but these are having practical effects on real people's lives. And our job in the prison service, in the police, in the church, uh, teachers, social workers, nurses, doctors. Our job is to bind the, the wounds and on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, deal with all the problems that are involved in the implementation of these irresponsible intellectual ideas that are going on at the center and which have nothing to do with the lives of ordinary people as they are lived, but which are inflicted upon them. And so these people who are dedicated to public service in that way are my heroes and heroines. I admire them. I admire the hell out of them. Um, and obviously, the propaganda of the day does not support them. I'd also like to say, David, that the writer who can tell us that is also a hero. Yeah, but you, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, thank you've God, talked, a deeply flawed. You, hero, yeah, you've talked about the flaws. You've talked about self hatred and the guilt and all the rest of it. Do you think you're a bit? You would. You are a better writer when you're happier, or is that conversely true, or is it irrelevant? I don't think any of those things apply. In other words, um, I happened to in in the 1990s uh, enter a period of intense personal happiness. I was incredibly happy. Um, and out of it, I think came five plays—sorry, five plays in a row—which I was, right. you know, was pleased with and felt were good plays. And yet, at other times, I felt that the agony and the torture that I was going through was absolutely vital to what I was um, writing. As I said um, in my class yesterday, the, the 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 misleading thing about writing is that the agony that you suffer when you're writing badly is exactly the same feeling that you have with difficulty when you're writing really well. Yeah. And it is absolutely impossible to tell which is which. And it doesn't get easier, does it? And it doesn't get any easier, no. but you do recognize the physical symptoms, mm. which in the book I describe as a feeling akin to having an elephant sitting on your chest. Yeah. And when, when you start writing badly, it is as if the 
air is actually being squeezed out of your lungs. I'm asking David if he'd like to read the epigraph in his book, which is by Sybil Bedford. Yes, this is by Sybil Bedford, and this is the epigraph that I chose for the book, and is talk about being in the company of better writers, Sybil Bedford. You see, when one's young, one doesn't feel part of it, the human condition. One does things because they are not for good. Everything is a rehearsal to be repeated ad lib, to be put right when the curtain goes up in earnest. One day, you know that the curtain was up all the time. That was the performance. Our 2016 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, on SoundCloud or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.